Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It certainly is great to be back on the air. I know many of you were beginning to wonder when would uh, Kirk Monroe ever uh, return back onto the air for a new uh, podcast uh, book topic series. It is hard to believe that it was um, a week ago uh, today that we were finishing up a Disaster on Lake Erie. Uh, the wreck of the uh, steamship Erie, or I should say the wreck of the 1841 steamship Erie. And since that time, uh, I had to uh, obviously plan uh, for what lies in store next. In other, in other words, I had to uh, take time uh, to plan for uh, the new uh, book topic uh, podcast series that we will be um, getting into with our uh, prologue introduction uh, here in a short while. I also have had other things going on, but that's to be expected. As I've said before, I'd say it again, you know, you can't uh, revolve your life around uh, something like podcasting. However, there are plenty of people out there who podcast, and that is uh, pretty much a career for them. Uh, in other words, they are uh, doing it uh, daily, and, you know, there, and more power to those people, but uh for this being a side uh, hobby of mine, I'm fortunate enough to be on the air at least uh, twice a week at most. So to me, that's uh, better than nothing. But nonetheless, I said it uh, from the last episode or the last time I was on the air, but I do want to thank all of you for being a part of that uh, book topic series on the uh, wreck of the uh, 1841 steamship Erie. I know most of you all probably had never even heard of that Um ship and I had not even heard of of that uh, ship myself until having read that uh, book and uh, and it was um, it was uh, great being able to share that with you all because sometimes uh, forgotten stories like that one uh, do have to be told and they do um, serve as a reminder of just how uh, fragile life can be especially for um, for those whom are coming from the old world into the new world and not being able to um, make it to their actual final destination because of a, an unforeseeable um, circumstance that was beyond their control. Well, I know all of you are probably beginning to wonder, uh, where are we going to go next in the new uh, book topic uh, podcast series? Well, I can tell you this much. We will be uh, in the uh, post-American Revolutionary War era. However, just because we're in the post-American Revolutionary War era, it doesn't mean that uh, whatever um, happened during the Revolutionary War, including the, uh, including the um, say, 1783 Treaty of Paris, it didn't mean that just because a treaty had taken place that everything was safe, everything was normal. We went about um, living a life that, um, that we were somewhat accustomed to before declaring our separation, but just because a treaty has ended uh, hostilities between the United States and Britain in terms of a war, it doesn't mean that America is still facing in issues internally over how she's going to um, govern as a nation, how she is going to uh, govern her uh, subjects being uh, the states. In other words, are the states going to question the new role of uh, government in terms of uh, how to go about um, administering um, authority. So in a post-revolutionary war uh, world, there are a lot of unknown questions. But what I do know is that there are a lot of answers to unknown questions come time. And 
another uh, big thing that we have to wonder about is, okay, we've got 13 states. What about all that land to the west of us? Well, that is going to be uh, part of our new uh, book topic uh, podcast series. So maybe it's time to get started with the prologue to where we're going next. And before I'm done with this um, introduction, before I wrap it up, I will certainly make sure to give you all the official title of our new uh, book topic uh, podcast series. This one is going to be somewhat challenging. It was after I I completed the prologue, I I came to the realization that that this was probably one of the uh, toughest of prologues, or I should say one of the toughest of introductions that I had um, come up with. But I will tell you right now that the introduction that I give you all, it may not be the most perfect of introductions, but it's the best that I could come up with. And we will, I can tell you this much, we will be bouncing around from stuff point A to point B. But in the end, when it's all said and done with, what I tell you from an introduction standpoint to this new series, all the dots do connect. They all come together from point A to point B onward. So how about it, folks? Let's get going with the uh, prologue to our new uh, book topic uh, podcast series. Whenever I come across the year 1791, my, my first response centers upon congressional approval of 10 amendments, which got debated by Congress. And not only were they debated by members of Congress, but they were deba- debated by uh, state legislatures and they were ratified by all 13 states. And because those all 13 states debated and approved um, these uh, 10 amendments with getting a two-thirds majority, they were sent back to Congress for final uh, wording, final um, vote. In other words, the green light is a, a definitive go. These Ten Amendments became better known as the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights, folks, which provide fundamental liberties. When I think of the Bill of Rights, there are many things that come to my mind, but if I have to simplify, um, based upon this uh, introduction, whenever I think of the Bill of Rights, a.k.a. uh, the first Ten Amendments to the United States Constitution, the one thing that could come to my mind is uh, the First Amendment the right to free speech, freedom of the press, the right to assemble, petition. Another one, such as uh, the right to be free from improper or unreasonable search and seizures, to having a fair and speedy trial, or in other words, the right to a fair and speedy trial. Of course, we do have uh, Mr. John Adams to thank for... um, for uh, the right to a fair and speedy trial, largely in part because he was willing to take a stand and defend the accused from the infamous uh, Boston Massacre incident, given that nobody else wanted to defend those um, soldiers whom had fired onto the crowd. But John Adams took the stand and was willing to say that no matter how you know angry or upset we are that there were those whom fired into a crowd, well... You can be angry all you want, but those soldiers 
deserve to have a, the right to a fair and speedy trial and be represented with proper legal counsel. So those um, examples that I've mentioned right there are just some of the most common ones that come to my mind. If I uh, were to pick another one, how about uh, the right to be fr free from cruel and unusual punishments being the, the Eighth Amendment. Enacting a Bill of Rights was paramount given it didn't take place in 1787, four years prior when delegates convened in Philadelphia to alter a previous existing state of government, being the Articles of Confederation, which had almost brought America into anarchy. And when I think of uh, acts of so-called anarchy or tinkering on the uh, verge of anarchy, I think of Shays' Rebellion. For those of you who were with me nearly two years ago when we uh, talked about uh, Shays' Rebellion and how um, poor farmers, or not just so much poor farmers, but middle-class farmers uh, basically were struggling to pay their debts and did not have access to hard currency, and all they had to rely on was paper money and basically go by a barter system for um, to get equal uh, returns. Well, their properties were being foreclosed, basically, and they felt that they had to take matters into their own hands, being the leader, Mr. Daniel Shays, and they, Daniel Shays and uh, other leaders um, assembled a large group of uh, farmers whom actually did shut down some courthouses to where um, legal business could not be conducted. And so finally, George Washington had had enough of it and said that, look, you know, we, instead of instead of waging war from within, we have need to, um, we need to scrap the Articles of Confederation. It's going to bring us down into anarchy. And, and so, thank heavens we had enough um, leaders with common sense whom decided that, okay, we need to either modify the Articles of Confederation or we need to scrap it all together and create a new document one that we that has to be at least 10 times better but secondly one that uh, we know that we have to get right this go around because if not we may not really have a, a united states of america uh, to to go by you know it's one thing to be considered the united states of america but if we don't have a true authentic uh, governing document that can um that can be relevant and um one that can't be abided by, then how are we as a nation going to uh, exist and let alone function? So, so yes, America really was on the brink of anarchy, uh, largely because of this Articles of uh, Confederation that basically gave the central government no power whatsoever in all 13 states operating as separate entities, all the authority in the world. To me, that's a, um, there's no, um, what do you call it? There's no separation of powers and there's no uh, structure, basically. To many of us, the enactment behind getting a Bill of Rights into places should have made America as a nation, including her people, much better off. But in 1791, the young United States Republic could best be described as being far from complete perfection. While there are multiple reasons behind why America stood far from being perfect, from a government from a governmental standpoint, one issue in particular left politicians deeply divided. I'll, I'll give you the answer right here, but we'll talk more about it uh, here again shortly, but I'll tell you now. If, I think it's fair to say that there would have been a lot of issues that would have left uh, politicians deeply divided. 
and that lovely word partisanship well partisanship did exist during the first years of america's um new government especially under that new governing document the constitution but if there was one um, pressing issue that left politicians deeply divided how about the following how to maintain the presence of an army during peacetime including lead up to fighting a war or i should say wars against foreign nations you know think about you know we did in the early 1780s, 1781, the siege, the siege of Yorktown and the Battle of Yorktown and the British surrender. I mean, yes, that was awesome. I mean, to think that America had defeated the mightiest empire in the world, David slewing Goliath. You can't, you can't get any better than that. But yet we still forget that it took another two years before all hostilities actually came to an end with the 1783 Treaty of Paris. So when we think of foreign nations, our immediate answers are what lie 3,000 miles across the ocean. Britain, France. Ten years after the British surrender at Yorktown, there still remained a presence of British troops along the Great Lakes. Yep, and believe it or not, folks, British troops remained along the Great Lakes or along Great Lakes waters including the old Northwest Territory. You've heard me mention about that uh, quite a bit in other uh, podcasts, book topic series, the old Northwest, you know, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, and sections of Northeastern Minnesota. However, uh, the Young Republic uh, was confronted by matters of national security along its frontiers which meant dealing with a non-traditional foreign nation. Or I should say, dealing with a non-traditional foreign nation power, just less than 10 years after the Treaty of Paris had put an official end to the Revolutionary War. Now, what if I told you that America's young republic in the post-Revolutionary War era was confronted by a massive roadblock within the Northwest Territory, starting out along present-day northwest Ohio. The large roadblock onto itself revolved around Indians residing northwest of the Ohio River, whom went about forming or creating a multi-tribal alliance, which became known as the Northwest Wabash and Miami Confederacies, whose fundamental objectives centered upon defending their ancestral lands against the United States government's westward expansion movement agenda. Oh yes, folks, the, the United States has been wanting to go west even before severing ties with the mother country. Of course, after that infamous Seven Years' War, Parliament, put a halt to it thanks to that 1763 proclamation treaty which forbid her own subjects being those 13 colonies from ex from going west of the Appalachians when France was forced to cede all of her territory to Britain Britain formed new alliances with the Indians that had been uh, whom had maintained alliances with the French and so the British are now protecting the Indians 
versus her original uh, subjects being the 13 colonies. Britain can claim that they are protecting the, her subjects, a.k.a. the 13 colonies, in other ways, but to me, this proclamation is a direct uh, stab in the back. You had promised the colonists that even after war's end, that you all would be able to go westward past the Appalachians. Just didn't happen that way. Although uh, the, the new U.S. governing document, a.k.a. the Constitution, did list or include recognizing tribal nations as sovereign governments, whom had proper authority when it came to governing their own affairs, the Tenth and Final Amendment to the Bill of Rights granted powers reserved to the 13 states. Powers reserved to the states can be viewed as vague, because it, it was never really defined in the Constitution other than saying that those powers not, res, not reserved by the federal government are to be, ought to be reserved to the states. So yes, uh, powers reserved to the states can be viewed as vague, but at the same time in these early years, the federal government oversaw 13 states whom still retained their rights to self-govern, thanks in part to checks and balances, including separation of powers, which still exist in the present day. I'm sure some of you are wondering where all this is going, given that we've mentioned some stuff about the Northwest Territory. We've mentioned about the um, about uh, a tribal confederacy whom is trying to, uh, or tri or a broad range of Indians whom have come together under one large conglomerate or confederacy to uh, preserve their old ways of life and keep out the new. Despite America's new Republican government having a proper system of checks and balances to operate under, it didn't automatically assure there would ever be a 100% state of peace between the United States government and the multi-tribal Indian nations of northwestern Ohio. Even within a few years after the new official governing document had gone into effect, Indian leaders throughout northwestern Ohio and elsewhere, mainly in the present-day uh, southeastern United States, and, and I say elsewhere given that, for one, um, we have to remember that, yes, there were Indian nations that existed well out into the Great Plains, like the Sioux, to the far southwest in present-day Arizona and New Mexico, like the Anazazi, the Pueblo, Navajo. We also have to think of uh, Indian nations as far away as uh, in Oregon and uh, Washington State and um, California. So the bottom line is there are... Um, I think of like the Arapaho in Wyoming, um, the Cheyenne, um, just to name you a few, of uh, the Nez Perce. So we have lots of other Indian nations out there. But in 1791, I think it's fair to say that the uh, federal government, in terms of Indian nations, they know of Indian nations along the Northwest Territory. They know of Indian nations in the Southeastern region. They haven't, they haven't known exactly just yet what lies along the plains. 
large, largely in part because we would have to wait another 12, 13 years before the Lewis and Clark expedition began. That's when um, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark and their delegation would have come into um, Indian tribal nations along the plains, uh, most notably the Sioux, whom were um, very well known when it came to uh, hunting buffalo. Uh, the Sioux uh, were very, uh, they would have been the ones that many years later would have um, taken the lead in uh, defeating uh, General um, George Custer that infamous uh, Custer's uh, last stand. But anyways, back to focusing on where we're um, needing to be in this uh, intro introduction. Yes, uh, yes, it, uh, it, it, pardon me there, that uh, the federal government is um, dealing with uh, Indian nations in northwestern Ohio, as well as um, those in the uh, southeastern um, region, but they frequently found themselves telling U.S. government officials the following, most notably in the northwestern um, region of, of present-day Ohio. This is in quotations, folks, and I had to do some research on this and why this is important per this uh, particular uh, sentence. We cannot control our young men. What does that mean, folks? We cannot control our young men. Well, for starters, the roles of leadership are different per each generation. But how those young men pursued their objectives would be much different given the present state or the post-revolutionary war era world now included an American government whose primary purpose was to go beyond the Appalachian Mountains and establish new settlements for her own interests, while the younger generations of male Indian warriors had to reinvent the game of survival as a means of preserving their old customs, traditions, knowing the world around them along the frontiers faced unforeseen challenges. The older aged Indian leaders knew that their young would do whatever was necessary to preserve past ways of life, but perhaps when telling U.S. officials why they couldn't be controlled from within also meant they were persuading federal government leaders to back off altogether from further encroachment of ancestral lands so that two nations versus one could still manage to exist peacefully without acts of surprise force. Think about it, folks. Yes, we may be the United States, this newly created United States, but it's far from being a perfect United States. Because what the federal government doesn't realize is that, yes, we want people to go westward, but yet we don't have the authority to say, hey, we've been given permission by our own government to establish new settlements in this, ter in this Northwest Territory. So therefore, you have to recognize our, um, our sovereignty. You have to recognize that uh, 
we are operating under a new system of rules and therefore you all have to abide by what we're telling you. Do you think the Indians are going to abide by what these uh, settlers are telling them? No. Simply in part because for one, the Indians, this was their original land. And two, they're not going to go down without a fight. And three, they've been dealing with this for gosh knows how long. We do have to be reminded, folks, that even uh, during the French and Indian War, or in the post-French and Indian War era, there were um, Indian traders along the, Ohio, along the Ohio frontier into what we now know as Wisconsin. They were uh, basically um, securing trading rights to where they were forming, helping form alliances with uh, Indian nations whom at one time were hostile towards each other. These Indian uh, traders were marrying into Indian families so that, um, so that um, alliances would uh, be strong even in times of hardship like war. So we do have to keep in mind, and this will be talked about more in an upcoming podcast episode, that while, yes, there were white settlers and there were government agents in the Northwest, they didn't come at their own leisure. They were assigned to go there for business purposes, such as uh, Indian establishing Indian trading uh, practices. But if they were found to be in violation of any um, procedure protocols, then their trading licenses could be revoked. So if you don't have any business, and it might be fair to say that if you're in the eyes of the Indians, 99.9% .9 of the white population should not be in our territory. 0.1% will allow, but even they have to abide by our rules, meaning the traders. The traders, the Indian traders can't just come and go as they please. They have to live as though they are one of them. So for the fact that that quotation, folks, we cannot control our young men. In other words, if you want there to be peace, respect our boundaries. In other words, how bad do you need to encroach upon our land when you've already got land in your neck of the woods? And if you, and if you um, respect our wishes and our rules, then two nations can coexist. They can coexist, but it's up to you all, the settlers, to make sure that you don't um, overstep boundaries. Once you overstep boundaries, when I think of surprise force, who knows? Maybe there could be a war, or maybe there could be a non-traditional method of fighting that could um, wipe out not just, say, 10 or 20 settlers, but I'm beginning to wonder if maybe... Hundreds of settlers, maybe even thousands. That sounds ridiculous, but we should keep in mind, folks, that even in the at the start of the 17th century, when the first um, settlements were established in the New World, like at Jamestown, oh, there were plenty of uh, Indians in the greater Powhatan Confederacy that launched uh, surprise attacks on settlers coming in. In other words... I think it's been fair to say that ever since the late 16th century and the start of the 17th century, what have Indian nations viewed um, the Europeans as? For a good majority of them, they've been viewed as invasive species. 
They're not welcomed. They're not native. And basically, they're, they are bad omens, signs of trouble. Well, the presence or let alone the issue behind standing armies. Okay, here's where we get back to standing armies, folks. The presence or let alone issue behind standing armies can be traced as far back to the times of ancient Roman and Greek civilizations. Come 1783, the year the American Revolutionary War ended through the Treaty of Paris, a good portion of, of the Continental Army got disbanded. However, smaller size army forces remained on active duty from West Point, New York, to various frontier outposts until early June 1784, when Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, established the United States Army. Well, maybe it is fair to say that the Articles of Confederation did do some uh, good things, given that it was probably not the most effective uh, governing document, but hey, all of this is uh, trial and error before that um, new governing document uh, in 1787 came into play that's still in existence uh, almost 236 years later. Although um, a standing army primarily comprised of permanent full-time soldiers whom chose to make the army as a primary career, this concept within American society come late 1780s proved opposite. And that should come as a no-brainer, largely in part because here we've just defeated the mightiest empire in the world. And secondly, do we want to make the same mistakes as uh, the British had done? In other words, do we want to be making people in our community uncomfortable day in and day out, knowing that there are um, that there is a presence of troops patrolling the villages? Do we really want to make our own people miserable? Well, when you say miserable, what do you mean? I mean, do we want them to be in fear? Do we want them to be complaining all the time? No, we don't. But at the same time, we want our uh, citizens to feel safe going into their towns and villages. We want them to be able to have to live some kind of normalcy. But at the same time, what's going to happen when a crisis arises? You know, what's going to happen when something really unexpected occurs that we've never seen happen before? Who's going to defend us? Who's going to defend us along the waters? And who's going to defend us along the mainland if a conflict should go past uh, the waters or the harbors? Well, how about this, folks? Although, like we said, although a standing army is primarily comprised of permanent full-time soldiers whom choose to make the army as a primary career, and as we mentioned earlier, that um, in the late 1780s, this concept uh, did, in fact, prove very opposite. As the Constitution, however, got debated upon, and one of the uh, many uh, subjects that were deba debated upon um, during the time of uh, 1787, and one of those issues just so happened to be about whether or not to incorporate a standing army. Many colonists held a firm belief during peacetime that standing armies were in fact capable of threatening their uh, personal liberties. I can't blame them for that, but worse yet, if we think threatening uh, the threat of personal liberties could be um, bad, 
How about for many of the colonists, the fear of knowing that they, that they would have to pay extra taxes as a means of financing soldiers, the, the presence of soldiers, no matter where they got stationed. So in other words, why should my tax dollars go to fund the presence of soldiers in West Point, New York, when I live in Virginia, 400-some miles to the south? Why should my tax dollars go there when there's nothing wrong in Virginia? Shouldn't the tax dollars only go to those? Shouldn't the people of New York be the ones who should be footing the taxes for this, um, for this uh, military oversight um, venue in West Point? So, you know, those are the questions that, um, that regular people are probably asking. However, it could be fair to say that for the masses... Paying additional taxes for troop funding in peacetime could have been seen to them as an improper practice of taxation without representation. In other words, yes, I may have uh, voted in John Smith as my congressman, but did John Smith speak to me on my behalf to say, hey, how would um, I'm proposing that we uh, support um, a tax increase that would help for uh, troop funding along um, our um, coastal cities. I'm also proposing that they we fund for uh, troop support in uh, places uh, further inland. Okay, it's one thing to address that, and you can have a debate on it, but in the eyes of those whom are having to pay taxes for troop funding in peacetime, it's just simply me, it, it, to them it simply is a... Um, a violation of uh, taxation without represent representation. They feel that basically, why should this be a permanent thing year round, or a, or a constant norm? We should only have to be funding this stuff in times of war. The problem is that, yes, there could be a war. Wars don't last forever. Well, however, those um, living during the American Revolutionary War probably thought that they would never live to see the end of the day or the end of the time when the Revolutionary War did in fact come to an end. Eight years was a long time. But the war did end. But at the same time, you know, it could be fair to say that America does have a population of people whom are leery about where their taxes should be going. Could it be that for those people that, you know, we simply can't satisfy them? Perhaps so. Or they just have this fear that wherever their taxes go, only the wealthy will benefit. In other words, the government will take their hard-earned money and use it at their own leisure without providing those from below um, fair and proper um, consent methods on where, in fact, the money is going. So it's one of those things that we still are dealing with uh, today, folks, uh, believe it or not. Well, Yes, it is fair to say that perhaps to the masses that paying the additional taxes for troop funding in peacetime could have been seen to them as an improper practice of taxation without representation. However, come September 29, 1789, the last day of the, first of the first Congress's session, Congress did pass legislation creating the United States military, hence a permanent standing army. So believe it or not, folks, one small step for mankind here we did create a standing army. But it just didn't happen overnight, folks. 
Five years prior to September 29, 1789, the 1st American Regiment, or, or I should say the 1st Regiment of Infantry, had served mainly along the frontier west of the Appalachian Mountains, but come September 29, 1789, the 1st American Regiment got renamed instead as the Regiment of Infantry, whom were led by Brigadier General Josiah Harmer, a Revolutionary War veteran, a senior officer in the Army from August of 1784 to March 1791, six years and seven months. Now the next um, segment here, folks, to this uh, introduction is going to um, give us as best of a 101 foundation that I can provide you all with as to where we will be going um, going onward into the next uh, podcast episodes of this new uh, topic series. So let's pay very careful attention here. Despite Congress having gone forward in establishing a national military, and when I think of a national military, let's keep in mind it when George Washington was first president, when I think of national military, I think of Army and Navy. There was a Coast Guard established, folks, even in 1789, but it's not the same Coast Guard that we think of in today's time. We don't have an Air Force because there's no such thing as airplanes. Even though Leonardo da Vinci did draw sketches of hot air balloons and um, helicopters, but we just haven't... Um, Hot air balloons, folks, have been, um, they've been experimented with in the late 18th century, but we haven't gotten to the technology yet with helicopters and uh, airplanes, but even da Vinci himself, in year, centuries before, was drawing uh, diagrams of uh, helicopters. If you look at some of his work, you would be blown away that, to know that he was well ahead of his time. But despite Congress having gone forward, in establishing a national military, a.k.a. Army and Navy, come late September 1789, excessive violence had already taken place between American settlers and Indian tribes along the Ohio River, as well as to the north, which resulted with nearly 1,500 settlers dead. Remember I mentioned earlier, folks, you know, we're, we're wanting to go west, we're wanting to... Um, populate the nation to where we can um, protect our frontier, protect it from, um, what do you call it, protect the frontier from surprise attacks by um, Indians whom uh, would want to wish us harm. The frontiers are really seen as a means of national security. In other words, if America's going to grow, America's got to populate in this um, Northwest Territory. But we've got hurdles, folks. We don't have proper law enforcement to get rid of uh, even the British, whom are still in the Northwest. We just can't tell them to leave because they're not going to listen to us. They've already got relations established with countless um, Indian tribes in the upper uh, Midwest or um, like what we now know is in present-day Minnesota and Wisconsin. They've got relations with Indians even in Illinois. Uh, even in Ohio, Michigan, present-day Michigan. So we are really stuck between a rock and a hard place. So if it's bad enough in terms of trying to enforce the law, how about knowing that 1,500 settlers have died trying to start a new life 
in a new part of America only to be met with brutal resistance by the uh, Indian uh, nations whom have banded together under one large alliance from the uh, Northwest Miami and Wabash Confederacies. It's a pretty massive uh, group, folks. And in uh, other podcast episodes down the road, we'll learn more about those tribes because it's a large number of them. The situation did not let up by summer of 1790, even as representatives from the Miami and Potawatomi tribe, tribes, well, name two right there, folks, came to Vincennes, which is located in present-day Indiana near Illinois and Kentucky. Uh, Vincennes is in uh, southern Indiana. So, yes, it's right along the Indiana-Illinois-Kentucky um, line. For the Miami and Potawatomi tribes, they were requesting peace. They really were. They wanted peace with uh, this new United States government. However, these tribes and the, the leaders of the tribes who came were turned away by Major Jean-Francois Hamtramck, whom insisted that for any prisoners whom were already held, pris held as uh, what we might think of as prisoners of war, that is American prisoners, Major Hamtramck demanded that all prisoners be returned. Well, the Potawatomi and the Miami nations did not listen to this request. When this demand was not met, Major Hamtramck and Brigadier General Josiah Harmer each assembled soldiers from the 1st American Regiment, where their mission aimed to eliminate the Miami tribe capital of Kekionga, located at the tributaries of St. Joseph and St. Mary's Rivers in present-day Indiana, present-day, I should say, northern Indiana, because the St. Mary's River, folks, if any of you aren't familiar with it, the only reason I know this is because South Bend, Indiana, home to the University of Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish. Um, South Bend is located on the southerly end, or the southerly bend of the St. Mary's River. So whenever you think of St. Mary's River in northern Indiana, think of South Bend, Indiana, and South Bend being on the southerly bend of the St. Mary's River. So the uh, St. Mary's River and the St. Joseph River meet up with uh, the Maumee River in northwest Ohio, which is uh, right along Maumee and uh, Toledo, Ohio. So this uh, mission to eliminate the Miami tribe capital of Kekionga was a disaster, folks. 260 troop, 262 troops were killed. That's 262 United States troops, folks, were killed. 106 were wounded, making this incident the worst defeat against U.S. soldiers at the hands of Indians along the frontier. Well, we tried and we failed miserably. It goes to show you just what kind of, um, what do you call it, lack of enforcement that we have. But isn't it fair to say that, that maybe our leadership isn't good? From a militaristic standpoint, I mean, look, not all um, generals can be like George Washington, but maybe it's our fighting tactics. Who knows? Something's not right. It's bad enough if you lost 20 troops, but to lose 260 troops, 200 over just over 260 troops to be killed at the hands of Indians along the frontier. That probably tells us right there that either our men are not familiar with the frontier 
or they have simply just underestimated just how clever and skillful Indians are in times of war and in times of surprising an enemy who might not always um, understand what what it means to have what it means to um, respect other people's boundaries. Following the aftermath at Kekionga, which had taken place between October 19th to the 22nd of 1790, President Washington instructed Major General and Northwest Territory Governor Arthur St. Clair to launch a more aggressive campaign against all Indian nations whose villages lied along the Maumee River in northwestern Ohio with the sole purpose of building a fort. In other words, by building a fort, they would be able to foresee all comings and goings of Indian tribes on the outskirts of the Maumee River Basin and perhaps be able to perhaps be able to show off their uh, dominance by saying, hey, we've got a fort posted here. Now it's our turn to maybe extract a little revenge. Well, it, it was November 4th, 1791, where Major General Arthur St. Clair led a force just shy of uh, 1,400 troops. It wasn't right at 1,400, but it was... Um, it was somewhat shy of that uh, number, whose purpose or mission, like Brigadier General Josiah Harmer's, centered upon taking Kekionga, the Miami tribe capital. Although the rough estimate of 1,400 men seemed uh, like a decent, but prior, um, seemed like a decent number, but prior to November 4th, Flags began emerging internally. Flags, folks. Maybe what I call red flags. A sign of, um, not just a sign, but signs of, um, signs of, uh, of a unit that could be falling apart. Well, flags which appeared internally under St. Clair's army ranged from new recruits being poorly trained to showing, or rather to recruits showing and displaying improper discipline. In other words, not um, adhering to uh, rules, not adhering to the commands of the officers. Maybe these troops whom, whom are poorly trained are the type who are the I, me, myself, I'd rather just come and go as I please, they would have probably reminded me of, the, of a handful of militiamen early on in the American Revolutionary War's outset. How about less than adequate food supplies? In other words, we may not be talking so much about top-of-the-line food, but food that is not in um, the best of uh, state. In other words, food that's about to expire, go bad to where if a soldier ate it, he's probably going to feel sick, and he so sick to where he might die from from food that simply went bad, spoiled, to a shortage of horses whom were of inferior quality. You know, it's one thing to have a horse, folks, but if it's not of, of the best uh, quality for a mission like this one, then what's the point in even taking a horse? 
How about desertion? I thought we were all in this together. But I'm beginning to wonder, how can an army function when you cannot provide adequate food supplies? How can an army function when new recruits aren't properly trained? How can an army function when there is a breakdown in discipline? And how can an army function when you've got soldiers from within deserting? Maybe not over to the other side, but just deserting to where they're leaving and they just don't want to have any part of it whatsoever. How can an army be unified? It's just not possible. Even in the midst of desertion, once uh, St. Clair's forces began their march to the intended destination, they were occasionally harassed by a handful of various Indian tribes, which led to further internal complications through desertion and illness. So isn't it fair to say that here we are starting out with 1,400-some men, and now all of a sudden, just before November 4th, not only is it the desertion, not only is it illness, but could it be that people are just no longer willing to fight? And as each day goes by, the number just keeps dwindling. Well, by November 3rd, St. Clair had 52 officers and 868 enlisted soldiers, including a militia ready for duty. But despite being encamped on the opposite side of the Wabash River from Kentucky, from the Kentucky militia camp, the 1st Infantry, including volunteers, did not bother building any system of defense works. And when I think of defensive works or uh, defense posts, how about redoubts? You know, those fortifications that um, are designed to uh, provide, you know, troop cover. They're designed to uh, prevent uh, the enemy from penetrating um, close up to where if they can destroy one post, they can uh, make their way further up the entrenchment. Uh, to where they can get to their um, intended uh, targets much uh, quicker than um, than being delayed. So, now that we don't have any uh, defense works put up, I'm beginning to wonder now when, in fact, the fatal blow is going to come. By evening of November 3rd, roughly a thousand Indians under the command of uh, Miami uh, warrior Little Turtle and Shawnee uh, warrior Blue Jacket formed a curved figure. And what do you mean by a curved figure? How about a crescent? I think like a crescent moon, but it's a curved figure around St. Clair's camp near the Wabash River. And by early morning, November 4th, an attack like none other before had engulfed American troops where they got literally routed in just three hours, folks. Three hours. What transpired November 4th, 1791, marked the highest percentage ever endured by a United States Army unit. 97% amongst soldiers. Major General St. Clair's loss has been referred to as the Battle on the Wabash, but the primary reason behind why this event had largely been forgotten was due to the fact that the battle alone marked the largest victory Native Americans had ever won against the United States military, probably up until 1876, when Custer's last stand happened. 
I'm not sure how many uh, United States military uh, men lost their lives in 1876 at the Battle of Little Bighorn, but in 1791, folks, 90, the casualty rate among the soldiers was 97%. It was, um, I want to say, at least over 600, about 620 soldiers died in one day alone. Could it be that maybe the historians did not write about this in textbooks because they were too embarrassed to admit that, that the new United States actually lost a battle? Could it be that they thought that the new United States was invincible? Maybe, but yet could not handle the defeat, could not accept it. Well, you know, uh, interesting to note here that, uh, yes, um, the primary, one of the primary reasons behind why this event had largely been um, forgotten was due to the fact that the battle alone not only had marked the largest victory Native Americans had ever won against the United States military, but a lot of it was had to do with how just how young America's Republic was just four years after creating a state-of-the-art governing document being the Constitution so you we would think okay four years in you know we've got this new army and you know going out on the frontier it should be a slam-dunk victory it wasn't folks it wasn't anywhere near uh, us being able to achieve it's fair to say that maybe we still have growing up to do as a nation Although America's young, repu young republic craved going westward for territorial expansion, her leaders were dealt harsh blows, which also included the first congressional inquiry into this event. But worst of all, I'm not trying to sound partisan here, folks, but if we were alive in 1791, who's got the upper hand in the Northwest Territory? not the United States government, the Indian nations, the Northwest, Wabash, and Miami Confederacies, all reigned supreme in the Northwest. Well, folks, that's our introduction, but here is the title to our new uh, podcast book topic series, The Victory with No Name. Of course, yes, I know some historians would refer to this as the um, the battle on the wa on the Wabash, but most historians have referred to this as the victory with no name, and that is the title: the victory with no name, the Native American defeat of the first American army, by Colin G. Calloway. Well, I know that we've I've got my uh, work cut out for me. But one thing I will certainly make sure to do is not to disappoint you all in um, discussing information that is relevant because this is a forgotten story. I didn't even know anything about this until having read this book. I looked it up online and I wanted to learn more about how America's first army was defeated. Not at the hands of the British, folks. And too often we forget that when America was at war in her early years, we think of two wars. Really, we think of the American Revolution, and, and then we think of America's second war for independence being with Britain in the War of 1812. But we do forget that um, America did have a war. It wasn't a, a war that was going on year in and year out, but 
America was in conflict with Indians along the frontier, but America had been dealt setbacks. 1790 was a setback, but 1791 was the granddaddy of them all. So uh, when I'm on the air again next, we are going to talk, get into talking about um, America in 1790, but we're going to talk about confederations. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, what is there to learn about confederations when the only con- type of confederacy maybe we learned about in school years ago was the Civil War? Well, I can tell you this much. Confederacies have been around a lot longer since that infamous American Civil War took place that, um, that deeply divided the Union. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I uh, look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time. And we're going to learn everything there is to know about uh, confederations. And it could be that it might be more than uh, one podcast um, episode on confederations. But as always, I will certainly uh, take the time to make it worth, uh, worth your all's uh, while uh, when being on the air with you all. Thank you again for being such ardent listeners. Thank you again for being such ardent supporters. Without you guys, I don't know where I would be, but you all have helped uh, make all of this um, possible. So thank you uh, again from the bottom of my heart. And wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.